What's up, everyone? Uh, welcome to another edition of Tuesday Talks. I'm Ryan Shepard. I'm hosting with Bedarian Gillette. Uh, we're excited about another wonderful conversation. Shout out to DJ Sofa. You had me grooving over here today, uh, setting the right tone. So welcome, everyone. Um, the CARE Atlanta Global Innovation Hub convenes the people, the people and organizations dedicated to defeating poverty by achieving social justice and equity everywhere. The Innovation Hub creates the space, programs, and support systems to connect leaders with global practitioners in hopes of solving the world's most pressing problems. Tuesday Talks was created to build bridges by exploring a wide range of topics. We hope that each week our participants leave with a deeper understanding of the topics and feel more clear about how they can contribute to solutions in their personal journey. At the Innovation Hub, we believe in the leadership of women. And through our talks, we especially look to highlight expertise from Black, Indigenous, and communities of color. We're committed to centering and uplifting all justice-centered voices in our conversations and programming. And today we'll talk a little bit about crisis management and disaster response. We all know that disaster can strike at any time and in any place, sometimes building slowly or other times occurring suddenly without warning and can significantly impact entire communities. The immediate effects often include loss of life, damage to property and infrastructure. And in some cases, it leaves survivors traumatized by the experience, uncertain about their future and less able to provide for their own welfare. This past year, we as a global community have experienced one of the most life-changing public health crises of our lifetime. And through the aftermath of the, of the pandemic, we've seen amazing resilience from individuals, communities, and organizations, nonprofits, state and local agencies, and the private sector have all come together to address the impacts of this disaster and others as well. And so in today's conversation, we'll discuss how organizations are responding to various crises and disasters and how we might rethink the future of emergency response. So let me introduce you to our amazing panel of speakers today. First, I'll introduce you to Deirdre D. Dixon. D became the CEO of the American Red Cross of Georgia on June 1st, 2021. So congratulations, Dee. She oversees the Red Cross mission to prevent and alleviate human suffering in the face of emergencies statewide by mobilizing the power of volunteers and the generosity of donors. Dee, thank you for being with us today. Welcome. Thank you, so good to be here. Absolutely. Next, we have John O'Donohue. John has been with CARE since August, 2012, starting with CARE Pakistan as their country security manager, and then moved on to additional roles as the regional security manager for Asia, regional security manager, Latin America and Caribbean, and most recently taking up the position as director for security capacity building and development. John has had the opportunity to help shape and develop CARE's risk-ready training portfolio, which supports training, readiness, and capacity building initiatives focused on staff safety particularly for those staff operating or deploying to complex environments and disaster responses. John, good to see you, welcome. Thanks, Ryan. Next, I'll introduce you uh, to Catherine Boatwright. Catherine is the Director of Operations for National Voluntary Organizations Active in Disaster, a national association of over 150 members who specialize in the voluntary disaster response and recovery industry in the US. As part of her role at National VOAD, uh, Catherine provides strategic direction and ensures effective execution 
of all programs and operations across the organization. Catherine, thank you for being with us today. Welcome. Thank you, Ryan. Pleasure to be here. Fantastic. So let's get right into it. We always start uh, Tuesday Talks uh, by asking our speakers to tell us a bit about the communities that you personally call home and the communities that you're advocating on behalf of through your work. So let's hear from Catherine, John, and then Dee. Do you want to kick us off, Catherine? What communities do you call home? Who are you advocating on behalf of through your work? Sure, sure. Uh, thank you again for inviting me here today. So excited to be here. So the community I call home is Brooklyn, New York. Uh, I've been here for about 12 years. I am a transplant from Florida, so couldn't be more different, but um, I call Brooklyn home now and just moved about a month ago to a neighborhood called Bushwick. Um, so I'm busy learning all the new things. If you move a mile in New York, it's like moving countries. So uh, it's a whole other whole other ball game where I am now, but I'm loving it so far. Uh, I have a bunch of Spanish speaking neighbors, so I have to learn Spanish, I think, because <laughs> it's, uh, I, I hate that I can't talk to my neighbors as freely. Um, and the communities I'm advocating for, you know, it's the communities that I don't know about um, so often in this work, uh, especially looking at uh, the scope of the entire country. Every time there's a disaster, you learn something new about community you never learned before. Uh, you know, the ratio in Iowa last year, I discovered there was a huge refugee population and we needed a lot of different languages that we didn't know about. Um, I've worked in Appalachia in Kentucky, which is a whole other population that I wasn't, didn't know about. So always hoping to learn about the communities that I don't know. And that's who I'm advocating for today. Excellent. And thank you again. We're excited to learn more about your work uh, in today's conversation. Uh, John, what about you? What communities do you call home? Who are you advocating for through your work? Cool. Thanks, Ryan. Um, communities I call home, home will probably always be coastal New Jersey. So those who remember the Jersey Shore MTV, yes, not far from there. Um, no judgment. Um, but now um, just east of Atlanta in uh, Decatur, Georgia. Um, and I, I'd say those that I'm advocating for today are, um, yeah, the, the dozens of trainers in our risk ready network who are based in our country offices that are delivering training, that are building readiness and resilience, um, not just for care staff, but partners. And, and these are the folks that, as all you know on here, are, are going out day after day after day um, in some of the most difficult environments that we work in. Yes, and I and other colleagues directly benefit uh, from that work. So we appreciate everything that you and the team do. Uh, John. What about you, Dee? What communities do you call home? Who are you advocating for? Well, I call Metter, Georgia home. That's where I grew up. However, I live in Gwinnett County, so I call that home as well. And um, so the communities that I'm advocating for, you know, I represent the state of Georgia, and it's all of the 159 counties here in Georgia. But it's anyone that faces a crisis or disaster that we can help with. Um, so, you know, it's anyone that needs help and that's who I'm advocating for. I love it. So let's actually pick up there because um, you're new into this role that is of, of tremendous significance. And so I'd love to hear from you about how the Red Cross strategizes around disaster response and how you all are striking the balance between what you kind of intimated 
uh, advocating for and helping anyone who might be experiencing crisis, even at the most local level, and balancing that with some of the bigger, uh, heavier challenges that may impact larger swaths of the community. You know, before coming to the Red Cross, I'm, in December will be four years. And before coming here, I thought it was all about the floods and blood. However, since being here, there truly is a strategy around how we prepare, respond, and recover. So the strategy, we use a, a, a high technology system called Red Cross View, and it truly is a state-of-the-art geographic information system that allows us to see disasters as they are forecasted, as they are forming, and just really give us a lot of data and visualization of where it could strike. That allows us to um, mobilize our, our partners, our funders, our volunteers that we're able to um, kind of prepare and be ready to help the community um, uh, respond and of course recover. So um, that's the strategy around the natural disasters. You mentioned home fires, and believe it or not, we consider that a disaster as well, a man-made one. And um, Georgia is the highest home fire rate across all of the United States. We have more home fires than anyone. And how do we balance that? Just really making sure that we have volunteers in place and we call them our disaster action team ready to meet um, a client in time of need. And I'll give you an example. At first I was thinking we cater to the underserved, but when a fire hits in the middle of the night at 2 a.m., whether you have little money or the most money, you're still trying to find your bearings, your car keys, your wallet, your cell phone, anything. You're just trying to get your family out and be safe. Whether that's the case or not, the Red Cross is coming. Now, uh, what that service looks like is a little different, but that's the balance of it all. And I'll pause to see if there are any further questions on that. Yes, no. So that's that's quite insightful. A lot of things in there that I wasn't aware of, especially this, um, this statistic about the state of Georgia. Um, I wonder, John, if you can talk a little bit about something that Dee uh, in introduced to the conversation around the things that people do in the moment. And that, that kind of throws a lot of the things that maybe separate us out of the window. When we're faced with a moment of crisis, there's some kind of human instinct that, that kicks in. How do you try to prepare staff? How do you train folks to have the very best set of skills and tools to lead to the best possible outcomes in those types of moments? No, thanks, Ryan. Um, and it's, it's probably, it hopefully encompasses in a bit of our journey within the care security, which is what I'm a part of, our risk-ready training platform. Um, and it goes to, to what you're talking about. It, it started... Um, even that started roughly three years ago, it was really more six years ago. Um, and also just the bigger journey of care being more prepared to work in these environments. Um, in terms of having those skill sets ready, we looked at our team in Afghanistan and now it's coming back in the news as most you can see, of uh, trying to get them trauma first aid training um, in 2015, 2016. And we had 600 staff at the time um, and none of us 
who could deliver the train spoke Dari or Pashto or could travel to these locations. So it was, it was a small, slow roll of a train the trainer concept. Um, but we saw over time that as that built out over the, the Care USA network, it was more than skills and capacity. It was, it was kind of really confidence. Are people confident that they have their own um, abilities to react and respond, just as you're saying, and just as Deirdre's saying there. Um, and it's also trying to really, I'd say, start to layer in um, and promote the concept of being lifelong learners for our own staff, wanting to learn, wanting to get to the next, whether achievement of skill set, whether achievement of knowledge. Um, but we're finding as we do that, that starts to permeate into, into other areas, which is, it was not our initial intent, but it's, um, it's a good kind of secondary effect. Yeah, and that, that, that's quite helpful. And again, I have, I think, the, the benefit of being on the inside and understanding some of the work that goes in and, and many of the efforts that are being pushed across the organization. And so I wonder, Catherine, for folks who maybe don't have the benefit of uh, working in a large organization like CARE or having the expertise that Dee or John bring to the table, how do we ensure that folks who are inspired to respond or want to, want to engage in the wake of crisis or disaster, how do we ensure that they are doing things that are beneficial or additive as opposed to either getting in the way or duplicating efforts that are, are better performed by experts? Yeah, absolutely. That is pretty much the whole reason why National Load exists is to help bring people together, to coordinate and to collaborate better. Um, after a disaster, there is a huge outpouring of support, which is, you know, you see the best of humanity first days after disaster. Um, more volunteers and organizations and churches and other faith um, houses of worship are coming together um, to try to meet their community's needs. Uh, one thing I would say is that, you know, we exist on a national level, but we also exist on a state level. So in every single state, there is a BOAD. And if you are an organization that wants to be ready to respond to a disaster in your area, I highly encourage you to reach out to your state MOAD to get plugged in because that's how, um, that's how you prevent the duplication of services. That's how you know what causes, um, what brings care versus what brings harm in a community. Um, something that is a beacon of national BOAD is our point of consensus and our guidance documents. Um, it, they are documents and they are resources, but, they are um, years of expertise put into a document of this is what we say in this service area um, is the standard of care and what we believe is best for the disaster survivor. Um, so those are on our resource page. I would encourage you if you're an organization, you know, looking to provide case management or emotional care or rebuild, you know, we have a lot of guidelines for those uh, as far as how to uh, serve well in your community. Yes, and we will certainly uh, share the additional resources and make sure that folks can get plugged into everything that uh, you all offer. Um, I wonder, Dee, if you could share with us your view um, around kind of the global landscape here. So you all are affiliated with the global network. You're plugged in with different experts and organizations across the world. What do you think are some of the greatest challenges that we face uh, as we look to be better prepared for crises or disasters? And what are things that are giving you a sense of optimism, uh, especially coming out of this pandemic where I think we've all become more keenly aware of why it's important to be prepared? I'll tell you um, the one thing that we've learned um, during this pandemic is um, disasters don't stop. 
just because we're in a pandemic and people still have a need and we are in a pandemic. And I think the global messaging here is that we still need our volunteers. We still need our, our funders. We still need our donors. We still need, you know, our boards. And whether that's locally or globally, we still need each other to help each other. Um, and I think that's our, our biggest learning of all of this. And, you know, our, our transition in this pandemic of learning to do things virtually and still meet the needs of the client, that has been a huge transition um, across all of the Red Cross enterprise. Um, and it continues, <laughs> and it continues um, as far as challenging or, or competing with the pandemic and the Delta variant and how we are still trying to make sure that we can respond locally, nationally, and globally. So just making sure that, that, that the training is there, that we are training our volunteers now in a different way um, in order to meet our clients' needs. I love that. Thank you for, for the perspective. And so we, we've spent a bit of time talking about kind of natural disasters, weather-related event, public health crises. But we also know that disaster uh, or crises can emerge from kind of human-driven events, particularly uh, in areas of conflict. And so, John, this is also something that you're constantly thinking about. There's this whole suite of unpredictable natural events that occur. And then there's the human stuff that we are constantly dealing with. How do you strike that balance and give us some insight about uh, maybe some of the different things that you might consider, uh, let's say, in a conflict zone or something that's kind of human created versus the things that are naturally occurring? Yeah, no, thanks, Ryan. Um, I think it's, it's naturally trying to strike a balance with being a big organization, um, meeting everyone's needs at the same time, which can never happen, um, but, but trying to be upfront of, of um, saying where priorities do exist based on. Um, yeah, based on the ebb and flow of if there's a hurricane, if the pandemic is kind of um, more prominent in one area, but also the the conflict pieces. And it's a lot of what we've tried to do over the last couple of years is um, provide, um, I'd say, our consolidated knowledge from our level, but linking into the feedback from our staff on the ground because they they live it day to day, they see it day to day. Um, so in a conflict setting, a lot of it um, does revert back to. Um, what are the new threats they are, that staff are facing? Are they based on ethnicity? Are they based on geography? Are they based on um, just literally kind of the, the pattern of life that they live and work in every day? Um, so it's, I think our team, our, our risk-ready platform, we've tried to um, really be deliberate in, in being better listeners and kind of really bringing that to, um, yeah, to, to how we develop and deliver trainings. Um, but I, I think the, the last one, um, that I, I did kind of want to note on, on that question too, is whether it's conflict or whether it's natural disasters, um, we, we have started to proactively, I'd say, deliver um, mental health or mental resilience training. Um, and in, in this sector, I'm seeing it become more, um, more integrated in um, yeah, how we engage with staff after events, um, not so much proactively, but that's, that's kind of where where we're hoping to work with other departments in care um, to, to build that is just kind of a standard approach um, and, and kind of really, really be open about that too and say, this is, this is something that we should talk about, address and integrate. 
Yeah, I do think I, I get the sense that it's a rapidly evolving um, kind of space and uh, it, it's the highest stakes, right? Because you're literally talking about uh, folks' safety and well-being. And so I think it, it is fascinating to see how we start to integrate more of these important um, pieces of it and particularly how the public discourse may influence that. I wonder, Catherine, how that uh how that plays out in your interaction and dealing with volunteers. How do you uh, ensure that folks who may not have advanced training are kept safe uh, and that people are able to engage in ways, again, that are additive and beneficial for all parties? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, working in a hazardous or complex environment, um, hopefully every nonprofit that is responding has done their homework on what are the safety measures that we really need to be taking to not only protect our staff, but our volunteers as well. You know, they're not required to be there. They're there of their own free will and goodwill to the community, um, especially this year. Uh, a lot of volunteers in the United States are in that at-risk category. So there was an, another level of care that had to be taken there of saying, you know, are we really willing to put them at risk for this? Um, so the balance is really challenging. Uh, so first off, I would say if you're volunteering, you need to absolutely volunteer with a certified nonprofit organization that works in this space. Um, I understand always wanting neighbor helping neighbor, but they will equip you, they will train you, they will give you the protective equipment. It is the best way to serve your community to make sure that um, you're doing it in, a, in the right way and you're well equipped for it. Um, I don't know if you want me to go into any more details about safety precautions that we've had this year, but you know it's been immense and it's been a huge lift for so many nonprofits. Yeah, no, for sure. If there's additional details you want to share, please do. I know we've experienced it on our end as we've supported um, community organizations. We're doing work directly in, in, uh, in the face of the pandemic and really across the, the global network of care. Safety and, and safety protocols continue to be top of mind. And it, it can be quite cumbersome at times. And again, it's working with volunteers is a particularly different muscle because as you mentioned, these are folks that are choosing to be there out of deep concern for their neighbors. And they're not always the best trained. They don't always have the requisite skill set, or maybe not even the materials, the PPE that they need to do the thing effectively. Uh, so this is something that, yeah, we've seen and we've noticed. And feel, feel free to share a bit or an example of something along those lines. Sure, you know, I would just say that uh, I can't imagine at CARE the complexity when you're talking about, you know, 100 different countries and managing uh, the safety precautions for each is challenging enough in the US as we don't have countrywide mandates. Obviously, every nonprofit is encouraged and with our membership, um, all national board members look to the CDC guidelines first. Um, and, you know, often in disaster response work, there are, you know, local organizations such as the Red Cross of Georgia um, that are responding locally, but when more resources are required, people often travel and bring staff, volunteers, and resources along with them. And during a pandemic, that is problematic. Uh, so there was a huge shift to doing a hyper-local focus on uh, staffing as much as possible to so restrict travel, to restrict transmission. Of course, um, there have been, uh, since the beginning of pandemic, every level of uh, type of mandates that we've all experienced, you know, masking, social distancing, et cetera. And now nonprofits are trying to gauge whether to mandate vaccines, you know, for their volunteers. And every nonprofit is gonna make that decision for themselves. 
Um, so it, it's tough because the every locality is has different mandates. And so when you are responding to an or a disaster, you have to decipher both the needs of the community and the safety of your volunteers when considering how and when and if you can deploy to that area. Yes, uh, we appreciate you all doing the people's work. It clearly comes with a lot of uh, complexities and, and challenges, and we don't take that lightly. Um, we have a few great questions coming in from the audience, so I want to pass it over to you, Ladarian, to give voice to those. Thanks, Ryan, and, and thank you to the speakers. Everything you all have said so far has been insightful, and I'm over here thinking about signing up, right, at the Red Cross to help and volunteer. So <laughs> thank you all for that. Um, one of the things that Ryan mentioned in his introduction, something that Dee touched on as well, is responding to multiple disasters at one time, right, whether it be natural or man-made. I'm curious to get you all's thoughts on the role of media. This is something Dee and I actually had a conversation on before this discussion around how do we ensure the media um, is responsive, right, to natural disasters, but also responsive to disasters that are also happening um, at the same time as a natural disaster. And not only here in the US, but other places in the world, right, that, that John may have some background on. Um, I'm curious if you all think the media should play a role and how you all have seen the media play a role in the past, especially kind of comparing the pandemic and everything being about COVID, right? But also other things happening, wildfires happening, um, conflict happening overseas. So we'd love your thoughts there. Maybe we can go John and then Dee and then Catherine. Sure. No, thanks, Ladarian. Um, just trying to kind of land it on on my scope when it comes to to training and readiness. I think one, yeah, one area that we um, so we we do. I don't want to say struggle to get funding for training and readies, but it, it's not on the forefront when um, we do kind of build proposals and secure funding. Um, and some of that does come down to our own ways that we advocate. Um, in some of these areas, there is naturally just kind of fatigue of, of some locations where they are endemic disasters, whether they're natural or um, man-made, human-made. Um, so I think, you know, we're, and, and again, I think CARE has the, uh, is a, one, a great advocacy and meeting comms department. They're able to tell that story um, and tell that message. I think where it comes to, um, yeah, potentially areas to strengthen that with media is for us, um, when it comes to training and readiness, it, it always helps that we're that we're able to, I'd say, connect connect ourselves to people, our colleagues, our people, our colleagues are, there are colleagues, there are friends, um, they're the ones going out and doing this work, um, and and those kind of human components and elements, um, one are a very big motivating factor for us as as our team, um, but I've seen it work really well um, when CARE is able to connect them. They still do, so it's that that human element where these, these people do exist. They are friends and colleagues um, in these places that maybe we'll never go to, um, but they're, they're challenging nonetheless. Thanks for that, John. And I, I think the human element is super important. I've had the opportunity to work with a couple um, care consultants who work in journalism and, and that's their same kind of idea around making sure people's stories get out to kind of help other people understand the crisis that's happening. So Dee, um, what are your thoughts here? I was thinking about my response. And um, let me tell you a quick story because you know we partnered with um, quite a few of our, our donors who have um, relationships with the media. 
with Amin Georgia from Channel 2 News, News. And with this um, partnership, they pulled together um, a meeting with all of their nonprofits, not just the Red Cross, so that we can have a disaster coalition, if you will. And that has been very helpful because when the election was going on, there was a whole lot of competition with what's being um, publicized. Um, and with COVID going on, there's a lot of competition as far as what's being publicized when it comes to a disaster. And we depend on that so that our donors and supporters and volunteers and the communities will know exactly how we are responding and or where the biggest need is. So when it comes to media, it's very important. Now, again, we've had some, some competition um, here recently, and I don't think it's just the Red Cross. I think it's all of us that, you know, really kind of leverage that. What are we doing though um, about that is still trying to partner with some of those media partners to see, you know, where we can get some sound bites um, on television, but we're also leveraging, you know, social media that we have a little bit more I don't want to say control, but we can certainly share the story and share what our volunteers are doing, what our donors are doing, what we're hearing from the community um, in a strategic way um, on social media. But media is very important and we try to leverage that as best as we can. Thank you for that, Dee. I think the important um, phrase is social media too, right? We always talk about media and I forget every now and then um, that a lot of the news I get personally comes from social media. So I love that you threw that in and, and put that back top of mind. Catherine, what about you? What are your thoughts here? Well, I love your idea of partnering with media. I think sometimes we think that we have to like compete or, you know, have fireworks to get their attention. And I love the idea of, you know, when during Blue Skies was saying like, how can we partner together? So I just, you know, tip my hat to that and would encourage others to do the same. Media is tremendously important and media in this country and around the world is very complicated, right? Um, I would say that it is a tool to be leveraged, especially local media um, when we're talking about internet and electricity outages. People can often find their way to a local news station through um, some kind of TV setup or through radio, also so important. Uh, to get really critical information out. You know, my, if I had one request of media, it would be to stick with the story. You know, the most funds are raised for a disaster the first 48 hours after it hits. And that's because there's so much media attention. And, you know, they're showing, you know, people floating away in floodwaters and really dramatic imaging that is just so heartbreaking. And that's all very true. But the average recovery of a community is three to five years. And people do not care three to five years if they do not directly live in that community. And so there's a real struggle to raise funds, to get volunteers, to get the advocacy and attention that local communities need um, when, you know, it's just not known in the public um, through the media. And, you know, media has their role to play and they have investors and stakeholders. And I understand that, but they could really partner with us in saying, how can we highlight the needs that are unknown 
the, even the human stories that are happening three to five years later, and that's the best case scenario, honestly, in a Katrina, we're talking 15, 20 years of recovery. So uh, stick with the story is what I would ask of our media partners. So Catherine, something you just said actually correlates with a question that just came in. So with media sticking to the story, right? I think of when I see the first 48 hours of a story, it's usually like you said, people going away in, in boats and, and lots of water and disaster. And then after that, it's about recovery, right? So one of the questions that came in is what are the challenges with collecting personal information or feedback during an emergency? Because I think that part of information could be that follow-up, right? That week or two weeks later um, that the media could report out and just let people know what's happening post the first 48 hours. So um, maybe we can bring back Dee into this and then John and then Catherine. Yep. <laughs> um, so the first or the post 48 hours, which did you say? I would say post 48 hours. If you're looking to collect some information, I'm assuming it, it will take a few days and that's some additional statistics you can give over to the media to report back out. But what are the challenges around collecting that data while people are going through, right? Having to move to a new location or find their wallet, find their keys, right? How do you collect this information? Yeah, so we do have cadence when um, the disaster hits that we are getting information on the ground and we're communicating that up for two reasons. So before I became the CEO, I was the chief development officer and we need that information to shape the story for different audiences, for the media, for our donors and um, for volunteers even, even though the volunteers are kind of collecting that information. But that the, the first 48 hours is important just as we are kind of winding things down so that people will know, you know, your response has done this. So we really try to get information from, from the ground or from the people that are on the ground to communicate that up and wide so that we can get some responses to, um, to, to respond to that disaster. And it is so critical. And I tell you, people respond differently. Um, I am a person that I love a lot of detail and a lot of color and flavor to things. And some people will just give me the facts. So you do have to shape that for the audience that is receiving it so that it can then be delivered in, in, in the spirit that you would like. So I think it's very important. And I think it's important that you have a, a lifeline to the, the, the feet on the street that's getting that information, that's sharing you know, the step-by-step -step and the day-by-day, minute-by-minute updates. So very important. Thanks for that, Dee. And John, going to pull you back in here on a slightly different tip. I mean, CARE, we work in a hundred different places around the world. And I'm starting to think how people on the ground, our teammates on the ground can collect some information that's sometimes sensitive, right? Especially when we're not talking natural disaster, but we're talking conflict. So curious to know your thoughts here on how they can collect that data and also keep people safe as well. Yep. Um, no, thanks, Ladarian. And I think a lot of it comes back to, um, say, our team really trying to, to maintain an identity as enablers. So enabling people to go out, as you're saying, in those first 48 or the post 48 hours. Um, and we, we can't predict 
what a conflict setting or what a natural disaster setting is going to look like, but we do loosely know what it's likely going to look like based on prior experience. And that's where um, I feel really fortunate uh, within CARE and then with partner organizations that we have, we're able to bring together a lot of different experiences from a lot of different environments. And, and when you do that, you really do kind of create training courses and, and courses that build skills and readiness that usually look similar to what our staff are experiencing. Um, and we find once, once we're able to do that, um, it, it kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier, you do build the confidence in your teammates and your colleagues to go out, even though there's a level of unpredictability, they, they do have um, confidence in their own skills, confidence, at least in the person next to them, their skills. Um, and, and just as, as Deirdre was saying, teams are dynamic and they're diverse. And someone might not be having their, their A day. Um, they, may, they may be having an off day, but if you have that redundancy across teams, um, yeah, I think it really, it really gives people the ability to go out in those dynamic environments. Um, and probably the last piece of that is, is we're also trying to make sure that the, the local partners that we work with, work with in these locations, um, we're trying to say is if they can see a care team that's willing to go out with them in, in kind of, um, yeah, in some challenging environments, does that kind of enable them? Does that say, okay, well, I've got, I've, I've literally got my partner organization here with me and we're literally doing this together. Um, so it's kind of that, that all those knock-on effects of, of I'd say really systematic, um, but flexible training approaches. And building on that too, John, around training, gonna kind of kick it back over to Catherine on this one, but is there some training that volunteers go through to maybe help uh, organizations collect this personal information? Um, a lot of our training courses that we build within Risk Ready are, are context specific. We do have um, some standard courses within CARE, like our um, our pre-deployment courses for um, challenging or hostile environments, our, our care emergency response training that we develop in partnership with our humanitarian affairs team. Um, so yeah, we do have standards within CARE and, and those are there's nothing proprietary about those. What we're trying to look forward in the next year is, is really saying how can we um, make our training more accessible, whether it's digital platforms or in-person training. So um, yeah, but but then a lot of it, we do really try to make sure that if it is context specific, our, our courses are built for those contexts too. Thanks for that, John and Catherine. I saw you nodding your head along too with Dee as well about training volunteers on the ground, right? To get some of this information. So one of the last questions that came in and Catherine, I'm going to kick this one over to you. One of the audience members was curious to know the distinction between natural disasters and natural hazards. Um, she said she's seen some campaigns before that use the phrase natural hazard to emphasize that there will always be extreme natural events but we have to figure out how we wanna prepare and respond to events and determine the level of the disaster. So have you seen this distinction, Catherine, between the two phrases? You know, that's a good question. I would look at my colleagues too. Um, I often hear them interchanged. Um, there may be a technicality there that I'm unaware of. You know, you typically refer to a hazard as being aware of the hazards in your area, you know, whether you are prone to a hurricane or an earthquake or a wildfire, etc. Um, so I think it's just a matter of preference and most likely the phase that you're in um, as far as being prepared for certain hazards. Thank you for that, Catherine. And thank you, Elizabeth, too, for dropping in that link. I'll definitely include that in the follow-up email. Um, but before we go to our last question, before I hand it back over to Ryan, I want to make sure, Dee, John, have you ever seen a distinction between these two phrases? 
I haven't, but I'm just thinking, you know, um, internally what what that would mean. And I'm thinking the natural hazard does look a little bit different than a disaster only because, you know, you're thinking of an oil spill or you're thinking of a natural gas or something like that would be the hazardous piece where the disaster would be tornado, flood, uh, um, hurricane, um, that. But I don't know if that's technically correct. So that's a great question. I'm glad we're all learning here. Um, so I'm gonna pass it back over to Ryan and now we all have some homework to do, right? To follow this link and <laughs> figure out the right. difference. But <laughs> Ryan, passing it back over to you for our last question. Awesome, thanks. And John, I wanna give you a chance. It looked like you were gonna jump in on that last question. No, it got my mind thinking too that, um, I mean, so yeah, I, I see some chats that we, we do define it differently in terms of say like our internal risk assessments um, and how do we prepare for natural hazard versus natural disaster um, and that yet yeah, natural hazards are, they're always gonna be there um, and, and we can't really do much about them. Um, but I think one, one area that we're starting to talk about more when it comes to training and readiness and, and that's, that's kind of where you probably saw me thinking Ryan was that, um, and, and this is kind of, yeah, probably more of a personal view leaking into this as well, but climate change and how that's impacting natural disasters and, and how that is um, kind of leading to, to secondary um, disasters that may be human-made, may not be human-made. Um, but kind of as we're, as we develop and refine and, and um, I'd say package our training courses, we're, we're kind of, as we trace that continuum um, of where is this threat coming from or where is this challenge coming from, um, you do see kind of overlaps of whether it's rise in sea levels, whether it's drought, whether it's um, migration of people, whether it's migration of um, livestock and therefore people impact borders. Um, so it's, it's all those kind of bigger questions, I guess, that we're, we're trying to grapple with of how do we, um, I'd say assess that environment correctly and then start to train our staff to, to address those um, challenges. Yeah. No, please D. I was just gonna say building on what John just mentioned regarding climate change. That seems to be the big buzzword right now with the Red Cross. As we are seeing last year, we had more named disasters than we've had in history. And you know, the forecast is that you know we are in a, a chronic state now that you know we're gonna have another busy season, and that's all due to the climate change and you know, going back to that question of the natural hazard versus disaster and what can we be mindful of in prevention. I mentioned that our volunteers are learning a new skill and that is to um, deliver mission virtually. And, you know, part of this climate change um, reaction on our, on our part is truly to see how we can impact our carbon footprint. And if there is an opportunity to do things, do more things virtually at will versus on demand, if that makes sense, that we're being more um, planful to be virtual versus having to respond to a disaster to be more virtual. So we are trying to um, collectively look at our carbon footprint as we are looking at our climate change indicators. So John, um, I, I just wanted to build on that since you brought up climate change 
and we're doing um, you know, some things I probably don't even know about. But um, thank you for that. Trigger. Yes. No, thank you. Thank thank you both for adding that additional uh, perspective there. One of the one of the coolest things about this this platform and sitting in this seat is that we're often able to see um, things that we may have learned in another conversation. So let's say about climate change intersect with the things we're learning today about crisis response and, and disaster preparedness. And uh, it truly is like, uh, I don't know, a spoil to sit in the seat every week and learn from experts like you all um, and to be able to, to connect the dots. So thank you all again for everything that you shared. Um, we're running towards the end of time here, but we always end by asking our speakers to share with us one thing that's bringing you joy these days or something that you're experiencing uh, or, or creating uh, to, to make joy in the world around you. Um, so let's go, John, Catherine, and we'll get our last word from Dee. Um, okay, good, good putting us on the spot. But um, yeah, um, bringing joy. I, I mean, there's a lot of things. Um, one that jumps to mind is my six-year-old started his first day of first grade at a new school. So he was smiling ear to ear. I'm sure he's not gonna always smile going to school in his life ahead. So um, kind of held on to that. Um, yeah, and, and probably just a real quick one too, is like, I know there's a lot going on in care and there's a lot um, that everyone is engaged in, but it, it, it just kind of feels like in a number of conversations that I get to be a part of that, um, again, you're seeing within care, and I know it's in peer organizations too, that, that people are really trying to, to band together and, and pull together on some really complex problems. And that's, um, that's great to see because you get to work with people who want to be here and want to kind of solve these problems and move ahead. Congratulations to your six-year-old. Uh, starting <laughs> school was always a big, a big accomplishment. We're happy to hear that. What about you, Catherine? What's bringing you joy these days? Well, I love what John said and I would just echo that I feel like I've seen more partnerships now than ever before. And I think, you know, the pandemic has brought us to this place, um, both virtually where we're able to connect easier and just in a place where we realize that we really need each other. So I'm, you know, props to that. Uh, I have a two-year-old son and we live near the subway and you can hear it from our house. And so about every two minutes or so, he runs to the window and points out yelling, train, train. And uh, for adults, uh, the sound of the train is annoying <laughs> and not, not a positive, but he has turned it into the joy of his life. And I love that uh, it brings him so much joy. So it uh, brings me a little laughter every time he does it. That's beautiful, I love it. What about you, Dee? tell you. Uh, so Catherine, I will say this very quickly. I know I said I grew up in Metro, Georgia, by my, and I was raised by my grandparents, and my mother lived in the Bronx, so she lived right by the subway. Oh, and yeah, so she knows. <laughs> that she train knows. was annoying, but anyway. <laughs> yeah. It's too loud. Yes. <laughs> so what brings me joy? Um, first of all, I must just kind of give a little shout out to DJ Sofa, because I could not help myself just kind of waiting and just moving to the music and I love music. 
So I will say music gives me joy, um, a lot of it. And I like all genres of music. I love gospel. I love R&B. Um, my kids are 21 and 23. So they bring a whole lot of different types of music in the house. Um, but, you know, I do have to be deliberate about joy because we can get so caught up in the everyday life and working extra hours and, and you know, when you work for a nonprofit and, and you are disaster relief, you see a lot of responses. So, you know, being deliberate is also making sure that I um, take some time for my spiritual moments. And um, I'll just leave it at those two, music and just being deliberate about my, my meditation and spiritual moments. Yes, that's a perfect note for us to end on. Uh, both of those things resonate with me and I know Across this community, we hear so often how much folks appreciate the music and how important it is to take a moment to look inward and, and to find quiet as we navigate all of this. Um, with that said, this is our opportunity to give appreciation to our speakers. So anyone who's able to turn on your camera, turn on your microphone, join me in giving a round of, of, of applause and appreciation to our amazing speakers today. Thank you all again for being with us. Uh, so join us next week. We'll be back same place, same time. Next week, we'll talk about uh, water systems and water access. Um, another great Tuesday talk lined up. Between now and then, we'll pass it over to DJ Sofa to close us out and wish everyone a wonderful Tuesday. Thank you for being with us again. We'll keep the chat open. Uh, stick around for as long as you can. Thank you. <laughs>